All right, Hi-Fi Nation for Slate Plus. This is Barry talking. I am here with Sarah Lusbader of The Appeal. And gosh, Sarah, remind us again, what are all of the things that you do? (laughs) I'm senior legal counsel at the Justice Collaborative. I write as a senior contributor to The Appeal, and I am a former public defender. Great. Today, we're going to be talking about the episode gender justice. Now, I'm going to let everybody know that I got Natasha Irving's story from Sarah from reading The Appeal. And so I contacted her office and she said, yeah, I'm a philosophy major. I'd love to talk to you about my approach. And she considers herself a criminal justice reform prosecutor. So, uh, Sarah, you have a lot of thoughts about this episode, right? I do. I loved this episode in part because you start in this very narrow place. The question that you focus on at the beginning of the episode is, should Natasha Irving bring these charges in cases where she believes that it justifies the charge, but she's not sure if a jury would convict because of the way that these kinds of cases go, these kinds of cases often being sexual assault or gender-based violence cases. So some people would say, and some people did say in your episode, that this is this is not how it's meant to be. And that, in fact, that means that you just don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And other people say, well, actually, that's just giving into a patriarchal society. And it's a it's a great debate and seems like a really thorny, difficult issue until you zoom out, I think, which is what you do in the second half of the episode. Uh, and that was what was so satisfying to me, which is that if, if you narrow the question enough, which is in so many ways what prosecutors are always doing, like, was this a good thing to do or not? Right? Like, no, it's not. It's not good. Like, it's not good for anyone to feel like they were sexually assaulted or to be sexually assaulted. But if your goal is not just procedural, but it's it's outcome based, like when you talk about moving toward the kind of state that we want to live in, that's a non-patriarchal state then the course of action that one ought to take becomes a little murkier. You know, my sympathies lie closest with Aya Gruber's. And she she talks about sort of doing the harder thing, the less satisfying thing. I guess one question that came up for me is she sort of assumes that the satisfying thing is, you know, putting the the defendant behind bars, right? Anyone who's accused of doing something like sexual assault, it feels good, like at the end of a Law and Order episode to put them behind bars. I so- sort of wonder, given that the research that she did about the evolution of feminism and how it became linked up with um these carceral sentiments in the 70s. I don't know if you know, like, was it always the satisfying thing? Like before the 70s? Was that the satisfying thing? Or was the satisfying thing to sort of mediate between the two parties? Or is the satisfying thing to sort of work out the issues whereby a person stayed in a in an abusive relationship, and in fact, give them the economic means to leave and let them go live their life? Yeah, you know, Sarah, the context in which Aya had said that to me in the course of the interview, the uncut interview, I think was the context in which she was talking about the satisfying thing vis-a-vis the context of outrage that um, that the community feels, which she thinks is very naturally um, uh, going towards, hey, prosecutor, bring charges, right? Convict and... God, it feels good that Harvey Weinstein's is is going to prison. The sentiment that you're describing, it's really, uh, I think, an, on her view, 
it's it's a real it's a small percentage of the people who work in criminal justice reform but not generally and i i get that because i'm on a college campus right and on college campuses yes there are people who immediately go to yes but we're not retributive we believe in restorative justice yeah that's not the that's not the main discourse around advocating for victims it's why was that person let off why isn't that person expelled right look at how egregious the college treated me by not expelling my abuser if that makes sense absolutely when you see i'm sure this is the true in society but i'm sure it's true in the society that is college campus if you see everyone who plagiarizes get expelled from college and you see very few people who are credibly accused of sexual assault have any consequences that feels unfair and it does feel patriarchal right there's one thing i would actually point out with regard to these high profile cases uh like harvey weinstein or 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 bill cosby or um i wrote about this with regard to kobe bryant as well which is an aspect of all of this, when you think about whether the procedure itself is fair, whether we're charging people at equal rates for these these kinds of crimes or these kinds of charges uh, with the, as opposed to other kinds of charges. But I think when you think about the outcomes themselves and what and Gruber talks about being accountable for the costs of putting bodies in cages, I think that there's another cost that we have to be accountable for, which is when you bring these charges and let's say the person doesn't plead you end up subjecting the complainant, the victim, to a lot of trauma. And you hear this again and again. This is this is not a pleasant experience for people who come forward with these charges. And there are a lot of people who never come forward with charges or who come forward initially and then are somehow dissuaded, even by their own attorneys at times. Uh, from bringing charges. This has happened, especially in high profile cases, to several Weinstein accusers, to several accusers of other high profile people. We have an adversarial system. So if you're the attorney representing the defendant, your job, you get the the accuser on the stand, your job is to do everything you can uh, to discredit their story because you're trying to convince the court that that in fact your client's story is the truth. That's that's literally your job. And if you are a defendant in a case like this and your lawyer does not try to discredit the accuser, you should fire that lawyer. So for people who are feminists and trying to advance the causes of feminism, by sort of heading straight into prosecutions and saying these kinds of prosecutions are our way out of a patriarchal society, you can't do that and then bemoan the fact that it is so awful for accusers every time without examining the fact that this is an adversarial system and this just goes with the territory. So there's two there's two responses, right? One is, so we have to take it out of the adversarial system, right? Adjudicate these cases in a separate way. I think that's your view. When you wrote about Natasha Irving with that I read, your view is that like you can't force these cases in an adversarial system. And that's taking for granted that there has to be an adversarial system within criminal justice to do this. And I think Aya said the same thing to me, so I had to leave that out of the episode. She doesn't want a system that's not adversarial. You want a system that's adversarial because there's so much power that the state has already that the only defense you have against the state is an adversarial system where you as a defender can be adversarial, right? The other direction is something to the effect of, so what we need are trial reforms that make it a lot easier, for accusers, 
to take the witness stand. For instance, rape shield laws didn't used to be around, but now you say, okay, you cannot question uh, an accuser for this, that, and the other. You can go a lot farther with those kinds of things. So actually there's system internal things that um, feminists can advocate. And really at that point, you're starting to say things like, yes, the crimes against women are different. These are the things where witnesses need more protections in a way that we don't need them in some other crimes, things like that. What do you think about that? I think it's it's dangerous territory. I think rape shield laws, they are exceptional and we don't see them in other parts of criminal law. Uh, but I think that they're well-founded, you know, I think for the very reasons that you're exploring that that Irving's concerned about. Otherwise, you really could convince a jury that because a woman had slept with someone else, that somehow they're lying about this particular accusation. And that's that's really scary. On the other hand, it's just as scary to me, if not scarier, to go much further in that direction and tie the hands of any hypothetical defense because you can't defend yourself if you can't discredit the complainant. For me, I think the idea of like believe all women is very scary. I say this as a woman, uh, as a feminist, it's very scary to say for this particular kind of accusation, we must believe all of the accusations. That's that's not the kind of place I'd like to live in. I actually don't think I favor an adversarial system. I think if we could move toward a restorative system, we would get at the truth more easily. Um, and we would make the process uh, much less traumatic for both sides, such that we actually get more cases coming out of the woodwork. And we don't, you know, basically force so many people to live with this kind of trauma without ever going forward with it. So I think, you know, obviously, there are so many ways that a non-adversarial system could trample on people's due process rights. But in theory, you know, if you could have a restorative system that was respectful of both sides, and that actually put the victim at the center without um, bringing the, the entire carceral might of the government down on the defendant, that that to me would be ideal. Something I hear from younger women, and maybe it's said in a context of anger, maybe it's said um, after a lot of considerations, I don't know. But it's the kind of reasoning that we're familiar with that we've talked about in the previous episodes, which is, okay, but the decks in the criminal justice was stacked against women for so long that giving a lot of what you might consider scary protections to witnesses that favors uh, prosecution rather than defense in this one area in criminal law is going to correct a long history of injustice. And of course, like everything else, will sweep a lot of innocent or relatively innocent or naive men in with the guilty. But that's a way of correcting for historical injustices. And that's a way of correcting for it in a lot of places. If we talk about racial injustice, it might be a way of correcting it there too. How do you generally think about that? You wouldn't want to be that defendant that got stuck in the interim, right? I'm not willing to forego due process in the interim because I just don't think it's going to lead us anywhere good because I don't particularly believe that the criminal system gets us anywhere good. But even if I did, I I just think that we we know too much to resort to that. Um, I think it's too scary to to just sort of willingly say, okay, we'll trample on like this sort of 
generation of potential defendants' rights in order to move somewhere else. I, I really believe that a greater societal understanding of gender dynamics, which we are actually moving toward, is so much more important. If you look at the actual effects of making these kinds of arrests and involving the criminal system, which you do in the second half of your episode, there's just no reason to think that more enforcement will actually get us where we want to go. You know, a lot of the the complainants, the witnesses themselves, they don't want their partner to be uh, to be arrested. They they maybe they want out of the relationship. Maybe they want a more equal relationship. These are these are issues of gender dynamics that we have to resolve in ways that we're just way too late by the time you're making an arrest. It's way too late. This has to start when when like our kids are little, when we're talking to them about gender. It has to do with the way that we treat kids in school and um, the dating norms that that we portray in popular culture. When when you sort of narrow your focus to say the only option we have when it comes to gender violence or intimate partner violence, the only option we have is either, you know, make an arrest or don't make an arrest, prosecute or don't prosecute. What you're doing is basically accepting all like like a basically a bundle of outcomes that actually could lead to like higher mortality rates for victims. Uh, not only that, you know, we know a lot about the the ill effects that throwing people in cages has not only on them, but on their entire communities, on their families, even on the victims themselves. What it says is that like you're prioritizing this one thing. It's sort of a, like a lack of imagination. And you're willing to accept the other bundle of things that goes along with it almost as collateral. One of the issues that when I was talking to Lawrence Sherman raised was given his research, there's this implication that if you're going to be a police force, if you're going to be a prosecutor, and you were also, you know, taken in by, okay, let's me, let me be more data-driven, right? Because one of the biggest problems is nobody accepted his research. So they're just kind of like, we're still mandatory arrest. So it's like, who cares what Lawrence Sherman has done since 1984? Because in 1984, he showed us the right way. So, but short of that, so now let's take the research seriously. You're right. It's unimaginative, the set of things that are being asked of police departments and prosecutors. Um Within that range, the option seems to be something to the effect of, it seems to work kind of well for middle-class white men who beat their wives, so let's arrest them. But for uh, unemployed black men, don't, because it actually backfires. And let's do more research and then like micro-target. I asked Lawrence Sherman, should we do that? And he said, well, no, of course you shouldn't do that. But then at the same time, I think this is an interesting opportunity to talk about like race-conscious and gender-conscious policing. We can't go there in America, but I think it's something that, and it's a philosophy show, like theoretically we can talk about it at least. Oh, that was my favorite part. I I actually laughed out loud when you're like, that's not even constitutional. Um, (laughs) I loved that as a thought experiment because we as Americans are just so used to that kind of policing just with regard to another group of people. Um, and in fact, when you hear, I hate to beat up on Michael Bloomberg again, but um, he, I don't actually hate to do it. Um, there was a clip that came out while he was running for president where he said, basically, if you look at the hit rate that we get, in fact, we're over policing white neighborhoods, even while he was very clearly over policing non-white neighborhoods in New York. And so I think that that sort of reflects the degree of comfort that so many people until recently have had with very disproportionate 
policing when it comes to the kinds of communities that have been for a long time associated with crime and violence. Uh, so I think it's it's a it's an incredibly useful thought experiment to say, okay, well, if you actually want to look at the data, we actually should be arresting these kinds of people. Suppose it's generalizable, right? Something like, turns out wealthy white people get really scared of arrest. Like people who are in positions of power with a lot to lose, it is deterrable when they when the strength of the state comes down on them in a certain way. And it turns out for the kind of things that Michael Bloomberg was really concerned with, it's completely ineffective, but it turns out being nicer, right? Like police officers that like let all the petty shit go actually does a lot more. So his problem was that he had bad data. Race conscious is fine, but it turns out that like it's it's the reverse. What am I supposed to think about that? You know, like if you're like a good progressive person, like how are you supposed to think about that? I think that this is a problem that criminal justice advocates have all the time. And it's not specific to what you're talking about. I worry about this all the time when we rely too much on data or what we've talked about uh, in previous episodes as utilitarian arguments. Because if you just don't believe that it's the right thing to do in 99.9% of cases to put a person in a cage. You just don't believe that. And so I don't want my those views of what I believe people deserve because they're people um, in terms of treatment and dignity to depend on statistics or the results of various studies. I happen to think that most of the time they do. I happen to think that most of the time it actually redounds to everybody's benefit to treat people like people. That's intuitive. It's also based on my experience, but it is very frightening to me that we would be so sensitive to the results of these kinds of studies. And your episode shows that really nicely. It was unbelievable to hear the assistant attorney general saying to Lauren Sherman that, you know, basically, if you hadn't come out the way I wanted you to come out, I was going to question your methodology. We have epistemological problems when it comes to the data itself. I just don't think we should be making our decisions based on these kinds of studies, except we could be certainly thinking about it in broad terms without letting the specifics dictate the specifics of our policy. You seem to like the deontology. That's correct. <laughs> it's the same reason that I can understand that like we could go around harvesting organs of like healthy people and maybe save more lives that way than we lose. But I don't want to live in the world where as a healthy person, you run the risk of just getting snatched off the street and harvested for your organs at any given moment. You know, I think utilitarianism has a, a like a, a limit at a certain point and reliance on data has a limit. If you look at the rhetoric of criminal justice, it's very highfalutin. It's about who we are as people, who we are as a society, how we treat the most vulnerable and who we consider the most vulnerable. I, I don't want to live in a world that is so cold that uh, any human is treated any less than human. When I read your appeal uh, piece, on Natasha Irving that made me call her. Um, I think it's fair to say that that was uh, a piece that was critical of her approach, right? It was. Okay. Uh, after hearing from her and all of these issues in a bigger context now, um, what is your take on, you know, feminist prosecution? I still feel critical of her because I don't believe that the best way to get to where we want to go, which is a society that treats women as equals 
is through prosecution or more prosecution, which which seems to be the route that she's taking. And I think one thing that you point out in the episode, which is true and really important to remember, is that for every case that goes to trial where she might lose, you know, she takes a risk. She's saying, oh, the jury might not convict, knowing that I might lose, but I'm going to take it to trial anyway. There are, I don't know, five, 10, 15 cases that pled out because the defendant, I mean, probably more than that, because the defendant said it's too risky to go to trial. And in fact, what you're doing is coercing pleas more than anything else. And some of those people might not be guilty. And some of those people might be guilty, but might not be guilty of exactly the thing that they were accused of. What you're doing is using a very blunt instrument for a very nuanced and complicated and thorny problem. And I don't think that it's necessary. I'm sympathetic to her ends. You know, I, as a feminist as well, I just don't agree with them. This is this is a disagreement of basically what I'm willing to accept and what I believe is the best targeted response to a problem that we both acknowledge exists. Does it make you not ever want to be a prosecutor or do you think you would be a prosecutor but approach the cases very differently from her? This is another thing that public defenders talk about over dinner, (laughs) whether you could ever be a progressive prosecutor or whether you just could never do it. I, I generally fall into the camp where I just, I think dispositionally, I always wanna be sort of championing someone's humanity and not denigrating it. And so much of prosecution involves basically trying to make a jury or a judge sort of forget that the defendant is entirely human and so the it just doesn't sit well enough for me however i'm a big fan of the progressive prosecutors i'm glad they're there (laughs) they're wonderful you know they should stick to their guns and more power to them i'm just not going to apply for a job in their office (laughs) thanks to sarah Lus bader for joining us for the hi-fi nation plus bonus episode for these past four weeks sarah is now taking care of a newborn I will be back next week and for the remainder of the season with a different guest speaking about the issues from that week's episode.